Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is Running on Emotion. I'm Alistair Eakin and I've been speaking to some of the biggest names in British sport. It's a podcast about the role of emotion in sport. From pride to fear, from anger to joy, and all stops in between. In this episode, we're talking about an emotion that is very hard to display as an elite athlete. It often comes at a price. It often implies weakness, but perhaps that's why only the strongest feel able to show it. We're talking about vulnerability. Almost all sportsmen and women at the very top will have a clear understanding of exactly what it means, the very fact that they're competing amongst the world's best dictates that they are vulnerable. The demands and stress of high-performance sport inevitably lead to uncertainty, risk, sometimes harm, and both physical and emotional exposure. How an athlete handles that will often determine their success. My guest understands all these complications and trade-offs all too well. She literally shot to prominence in 2010 at the Winter Olympics in Vancouver, where she won gold in the women's skeleton. It was Britain's first gold medal in an individual event at the Winter Games for 30 years, and the first by a British woman for a staggering 58 years. In that event, she broke the track record twice, and she finished more than half a second ahead of her rivals, a huge margin in a sport where winners are generally separated by hundredths of a second. Hurtling headfirst on a sled at breakneck, teeth-rattling speeds of up to 90 miles an hour, just inches off the ice, is not for everyone. But Amy Williams was once the best and the fastest on the planet. Amy, thank you so much for joining me from your home in Bath. How are you? And have I painted an accurate picture of your former job? Wow. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. It's always really strange when you hear someone else's description of you. And um, yeah, I, I feel quite um, chuffed to be that person. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be one of the most dangerous pursuits that you could possibly have chosen. Of course, this means a very obvious physical vulnerability. Every time you competed, you, you were essentially taking your life in your hands. Yeah, I, I guess you kind of don't really realise that when you're clearly doing your sport. I think in the very early days when you're learning, of course, you realise, oh, my goodness, what am I doing? I'm lying on a sled. I'm, I'm exposed. There's nothing around you. You know, you're just holding on to that sled for kind of dear life. There's no brakes. There's nothing. It's just you. And once you leave the top of the track, that's it. You're gone. So I guess in that sense, you're just out there with the elements. And um, yeah, in that sense, anything can happen. Your your emotions, your physical side it is just you you the sled the ice and um a big long track in front of you it's really raw isn't it we'll we'll talk about the dangers the risks the injuries obviously but i think probably it makes sense to start with those emotions that envelop you 
in a skeleton run, just a regular, if there is such a thing, mm. skeleton run. <laughs> I mean, do you remember the first time? Yes, I do remember my first time. And yet I kind of wish I wrote it down more. So, I mean, first time you go from halfway on a track, I just lay down on the on this old rickety sled. I lay down, held on, and someone just pushed my feet just enough to get you going. And you basically trickle off and you tap each wall. And the speed picks up. And then before you know it, it's like you've been in a washing machine. You've bumped every single wall and then you're at the end. And I remember just shaking, just that, the kind of fear, the adrenaline, the... Oh, I, I, you can't even explain it. it. It's just everything. I mean, I hated it. Like, absolutely hated it to begin with. Really? And then there's just that weird thing of, oh, yeah, you hurt. I mean, you were black and blue all over your arms, your hips, your ankle bones, the side of your legs. But then there's just that weird thing of... I don't want to hit the walls. I want to get down without hitting the walls. And then you slowly work your way to a top of a track. And then obviously, as soon as you're sprinting off the top, that speed and everything is fast forwarded, so to speak. I, w- I read somewhere that you bit the top of your tongue off. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it did happen. Like only a tiny bit, but it, it would have been in those early days, those first few runs. So basically the pressure is so high in some of the corners, you know, you can have four to five Gs of pressure for a split second. So if you enter a corner in the wrong angle at the wrong place, that pressure just whacks you. So your head then, even a few inches, gets smashed onto the ice and depending on how your teeth are, and obviously your tongue's in the wrong place because you're not really thinking about it yeah you can quite easily nip your tongue and oh you know yeah a lot happens it's not really that nice in those first few years sounds grim (laughs) I mean it goes without saying doesn't it that you have to be a speed freak you have to be an adrenaline junkie yeah I mean I guess before I started skeleton I didn't necessarily think I was a speed freak but I was definitely like a child that was up for anything I mean growing up we didn't have a TV I've got a twin sister um, a brother that's a little bit older and and you know we were outdoors we were out in the garden mucking around you know we were always doing every single different sport but yeah I don't know it's not like we had been had never been skiing that kind of adrenaline but I think my parents would always say you know once I put my mind to something it didn't matter what it was I just wanted to do my very best I kind of didn't want to stop until I had achieved it or you know done a good job and basically I hated being told off so even as a child I I never wanted to be told off so I always wanted to be really good (laughs) I reckon that's what I'm going to put it down to you're a pleaser yeah yeah yeah, true (laughs) so Talk me through the rush, if you can, that exhilaration, the buzz when you fire yourself like a bullet from a gun down the, the crusted ice. Oh, crikey. I mean, our sport is such this edge of a sword. One minute you've got this massive explosiveness. So you've got your adrenaline at the top because you're trying to sprint as fast as you can. So we are our power speed sport just for that 30, 35 metres. You're pushing your sled, so you're exploding off that block. And as soon as you've got over that massive sprint start, you're trying to be as still and as calm and as relaxed as possible as you lie on your sled. There is still a lot of tension in your body because you've got to hold that perfect body position with all those pressures. And then obviously you're trying to steer the sled down anywhere between 14 and 19 corners. And your brain is working literally at lightning speed because it takes, oh, 45 to maybe 60 seconds, depending on which track, to get down. And that could be going down 
however many corners. So there's all those different elements and you've got to have everything just coming together and not being too psyched up, but not being too relaxed and just finding that perfect happy place. Amazing. And you've described it in the past, haven't you, as pure feeling. What exactly do you mean by that? I guess, like all of us, there's just this fine line, isn't there, of for us in our sport, not doing too much. So you don't want to steer your sled like crazy in every corner. Like anything, you're just trying to find the perfect line. So I don't know about you, but I'm obsessed with watching all this Formula One stuff on Netflix at the moment. It's fascinating to watch because I always explain our sport like a different version of Formula One. You're trying to find the fastest line around a corner with as little effort because you want the sled and the car to flow. So for us, we want to do as little as possible, but you've got to do enough because if you slightly are at that little bit of a wrong angle, I mean, we're talking maybe one centimetre too much to left or right, it can really change what happens within that corner. So yeah, it's just that feeling of flowing and feeling the ice, you and your sled becoming one. And I think we've probably all driven our car and somehow you've just got home and you're like, oh, I'm home. It's just that automatic pilot, isn't it, almost, that you're kind of just... You don't have to think about putting your indicator on and looking in your mirrors. You just do it because you've driven your car now for years. So it's that sort of same thing. I think that's the only way I can explain it. That's an excellent explanation. I mean, does anything scare you? Oh, yes. And I think almost more so now that I've retired from the sport and I'm a mum and I've got two children to look after, I'm probably more cautious, think probably of all the bad things that could happen. Yeah, I'm definitely a different person now than probably what I was. But I think at the same time, for me, you don't think about it in your sport. You you can't stand at the top of that track and have fear. Of course, it's there. But then you do your self-talk and your motivation and your mindset and you get into that right headspace because you can't think about fear when you're going down. You can't think about what are the bad things that could happen. So, you know, you learn to just shut all that out and become empty and then you go and do your job. Whereas I think now and, you know, other circumstances, yeah, maybe you're not quite that high-performing athlete in normal day-to-day life. (laughs) So let's wind the clock back a bit, Amy. You're 18 years old at university. You're a speedy 400 mm-hmm. meter runner. How exactly did you come to be whistling down an ice track on a tea tray in a jumpsuit? Well, basically, I wasn't fast enough at 400. <laughs> um, that's one of the reasons. No, I think for me, I always say I just lived in the right place at the right time and was inquisitive. Yeah, my aim was to, to do 400 meter. I remember watching Sally Gunnell and, you know, Okay, she did 400 meter hurdles, which I just think is hardcore. And I just remember seeing what, what is it like to see someone on the top of the podium with that flag around them, that Union Jack flag around them? And what would it feel like to be the very best in the world? And I think with my 400 meters at 16, 17, 18, yeah, I was quick, but I know I wasn't quick enough. And I suffered a lot from like shin splints and compartment syndrome. So I couldn't do all the long distance stuff that I needed to do. And so I think my eyes were just open. Like, what else can I do? What other sport can I do? And actually, I tried modern pentathlon at the same time. Modern pentathlon and skeleton were based at Bath, at the University of Bath. And um, I was just in the gym one day, being nosy. And I did try pentathlon for a little bit. I kind of keep that bit a bit secret. Actually, it was the start track that had just been designed for the 2002 Salt Lake City Games, which were February 2002. 
yeah, I just gave it a go. And so I guess I had enough of that speed to begin with and just picked it up quite naturally. And I guess the rest is history. But I, I basically joined in on the World Push Championships. So I got myself on the train out to Holland and they were just doing that, just that sprint start. So the 30 metres, no ice involved. It was all on scaffolding in the middle of a town centre in Holland. And I entered as a guest for Great Britain. I won my guest category. I came second overall. And they'd just become a performance director into the sport at that time. And they were the ones who said, look, take yourself on this army ice camp, pay your way, go as a civilian, give it a go. So um, that's what I did. So what happened at the army ice camp? It was in Lillehammer in Norway? Yeah, Lillehammer, Norway, October 2002. That's where I bit the end of my tongue off. Um, yeah, and so it was. It was like a two-week ice camp with all the military. There was a few of us who were civilians paying our money to go along. And yeah, I think probably what kept me going, I didn't want to look like a little wimp in front of these like big bobsleigh girls and, you know, the big army guys of the bobsleigh athletes that were just massive compared with us little kind of skinny skeleton lot um yeah and, and I guess that's the thing it's that little bit of addiction sort of gets going and although you're in agony and you wake up and you can't even move your head off the pillow and your neck and your body aches it's just something that just makes you want to do better and then maybe that's just the personality of wanting to improve and that thing inside of you so would I be right in saying that that was perhaps the first place that you might have felt some of that vulnerability that we're here to talk about, uh, perhaps in terms of your performance, but also those around you and whether you could actually express any of that? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I've never really thought about it like that. But yeah, you're right. I think already you've got that bit of pride. You want to do well and you don't want these army lot. And there was RAF guys there and the girls. And I remember I was in a hut actually with some um, RAF bobsleigh girls. And I remember feeling just so uncomfortable because they were just massive and muscular and they were all in this kind of little gang together and we were just like this little, hi, I'm Amy. But, you know, no one really talked to you. And Donna Leslie, the army lady that pushed me off for the very first time back in October 2002, is still one of a very close friend to this day. So that's a really lovely feeling that actually I, I genuinely have kept. The first lady that ever pushed me off is still someone in my life. That's lovely to hear in itself, but it, it sounds as if there were plenty of women involved in this particular pursuit at the time. Obviously, British Skeleton has an outstanding history these days, doesn't mm. it, of success by women. Alex Coomba, bronze in Salt Lake in 02, Shelley Rudman, silver four years later in Turin, your gold in Vancouver, Lizzie Yarnold in Sochi. But when, when you were starting out, Amy, was it a little bit unusual to be a woman doing this or was it quite normal? It's Salt Lake City Games. That was the first Olympics that the females have ever been allowed to compete in. A skeleton goes before and obviously bobsleigh and the Cresta Run. Cresta Run, there's no females that are allowed. And still to this day, it's a, it's a male-dominated um, club. Uh, women are allowed to go one day a year as the wife or girlfriend of a club member. Outrageous. Uh, and that's just the tradition. Yeah, I guess back then... There were less females and if there were any, they were all military because that's, you know, being able to do the sport and especially winter sport was a definitely more traditional military sport. I was like the first breed of group of girls that were not military in the sport. And for sure, 2002, 2003, there was no money in the sport. There was no funding. There was no real structure. We just got on a performance director and I have definitely, you know, the sport, what it is now and today with a brand new talent ID scheme coming in. I mean, it's proper rags to riches story almost from 
us being on battered old sleds and not having the best equipment. And I remember literally being on a male sled was too heavy and going to welding workshops in Calgary, trying to like literally cut bits out of the sled to make it as lighter because otherwise I'd be too heavy and illegal. You know, I mean, stories like that. And now, you know, we've got McLaren Formula One team trying to help and design and make the sleds quicker and succeeding. So totally different. Absolutely. Did you feel an emotional vulnerability about your pursuit of success back then, given the environment? And if you did, did you kind of verbalise it at all? Or did you just deal with it yourself internally? I mean, emotionally, it was oh, it was a crazy time. Crazy in those first few years. I was sort of 18, 19. I was a shy girl, definitely were not confident, didn't have the guts to ever speak out or say my thoughts, say my feelings. We've already established I'm a pleaser. You know, I just keep my mouth shut and I'm the one in the background. I mean, I wish probably in hindsight that I had explained my feelings or when I thought things weren't unfair. I've definitely worked with coaches and mostly European coaches where English isn't first language, where for sure women are not as important as the men, the way that they treated you, the comments that were being said. And yeah, that was really tough. I mean, at the time, I didn't do anything about it because I, yeah, like I said, I wasn't brave enough. I wasn't gutsy enough. You just kept quiet. You didn't want to ever cause any trouble because you just wanted to do your sport and you never wanted to cause friction. But also within teams, you know, we are an individual sport and yet we have to travel around as a team. You've got teammates around you, but aren't teammates because you're an individual sport and you're not going to necessarily get on and other people are not going to be nice to you on the team. And so you've got a whole kind of level of emotions of all sorts of things to have to deal with constantly every single day. And did you find enough kindred spirits to actually share some of that? Oh, you know what? My best friends in my sport were all from other countries. So my closest buddies became some of the German girls who were second and third next to me on the podium in Vancouver. The Aussie girls, one of the Americans, the Canadian. Yeah, I mean, I just had so many amazing friendships from all over the world. And that actually was normally true. You became closer friends to those in other nations than your own nation because you weren't fighting. You know, yes, you want to beat a German girl, but actually everyone would always want to beat their own country. I don't know, it's a really hard thing to explain, being that you always want to be that top-ranked person in your own country. It's a tricky one. But yeah, I mean, those friendships to this day are going to be there for life. Well, that, that's great to know. So ahead of the Turin Games, you missed out on Olympic selection, didn't you? Just mm -hmm. the one place available, so no margin for error. How did that impact you, Amy? Because emotionally, that must have been a little bit difficult to take, but it also provoked something in you, didn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was meant to happen. I really believe that was always meant to happen. Destiny, I was never meant to make it to those games. I definitely learned a lot, and from my performance... It was a massive turning point. I think I became so obsessed that year before, that competition year before those Turin games, because I knew I had to be ranked the highest. And I spent every single race knowing I had to beat the other girl. You know, I had to be the top Brit. And I think in hindsight, you know, I didn't perform as well. I had that extra tension in my body on the sled. I wasn't 
quite good enough at that time. You know, my mindset, my psychology wasn't good enough and strong enough. So yeah, when I knew I didn't have that place, I still went out and I went and I commentated for the radio actually, because I wanted to learn from the experience. I wanted to feel what it was like to be in Olympic Games because I'd never been before. And I wanted to kind of get all that energy and know what it would feel like. And then, yeah, 100%. I came home from those Olympics. We all had like a month off. I actually went out to Australia to hang out with my Australian skeleton and bobsleigh friends. Went for a bit of travelling and then I came back and it was like the blinkers were on. That was it. Every decision of every day was, is this going to help me get to go to Vancouver? Yes or no? And I just became like obsessed. That was it. Flipped a switch, that fire in the belly, passion. This is it. We pretty much knew we would get two places for those Vancouver games. And I just knew, you know, my feet were going to be on that start line. I always find this extraordinary that there was no ice track in Britain. And yet Mm. here you are as an Olympic gold medalist. And obviously we've we've detailed the others who've been successful. But as a result, there was this absolute necessity, wasn't there, for you to be the best power speed athlete for the pushing bit of the sled. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely how we talent ID people, how we focus is, yeah, if we can get the fastest starters, the fastest pushers in the world and then teach them how to drive, we have to, yeah, use whatever advantage we've got. So we train really hard at uh, the University of Bath. We've got this special start track and that is definitely what we focus on, being the strongest, fastest, explosive uh, pushers. And then obviously we try and get as much ice time as we can around the world when other nations allow you to have track times. And then, you know, how else can you think outside the box? How else can you learn the tracks better than anyone else on paper, obviously, and watching headcam videos? Can you prepare your body? Can you get that mindset as strong as you can and focus on all those other areas? And I think we're just very good in in Britain at having to learn quickly. So when we rock up at a track, we focus in, we know you could be racing and not still perfecting your steers. I mean, I watched my Olympic race and I still didn't get all my corners right. I can still like pick holes in it and see what went wrong. But, you know, we learn the key corners as fast as possible. We're good at learning fast and that's what you have to be able to do. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. What about funding, Amy? Because this was a major factor for you, wasn't it? That only resulted the money from medals. So is it accurate to say that there was a pretty cutthroat culture? Either you were a great prospect or you were out. And can I ask Mm. you about the the lack of financial security that was wrapped up in all of that? Did that make you feel vulnerable as a consequence because you sort of balanced on a bit of a knife edge? Yeah, always. It was always in the back of your head. You have to perform, otherwise you could get kicked off. So eventually when we had this performance structure and we had a very nice triangle design, you know, you had to hit results. Every single race, you knew what position you had to get. 
off of last year's results. You know, you had to hit your targets. We had to have so many top three positions, so many top sixes. Otherwise, yeah, at the end of that winter season, if you didn't hit your targets, 100% you could be kicked off. And so I think you always had that in the back of your head. You wanted to perform in every single World Cup race because you wanted to make your place in that World Championships at the end because that one race of a year is what you could get your lottery funding off of. So again, it was a top three place, a top six, a top nine, or I don't know, it, it changes over the years, top 12. And so that was really, really important. You had to perform. You had to perform all the time because you couldn't just relax and think, ah, yeah, you know, no worries. I've got my place. I'm here to stay. No, it, it never was. And even in Vancouver, we knew someone had to bring home a medal in the sport, male or female, gold, silver, bronze, for the sport to survive. If we didn't bring home a medal, we knew our sport could be completely axed. That's it, done. So, yeah, always pressure yourself to perform well, but also that wider pressure and that kind of weight on your head of, of having to perform for the team and to keep the sport alive. So let's talk about Vancouver, Amy. You worked so hard, didn't you, to get there, to earn your shot in 2010. Tell me what it meant to you to wear those five rings on your chest. Oh, wow. Yeah, the day that you get those five rings, the day you actually go and get all your kit. Oh, it's like Christmas all come at once, your whole life. Um, Yeah, I just think that that feeling of pride, that feeling of, okay, I am now, no matter what result, I am still the best in the world at this moment in time. I'm representing my country at Olympics. And it sends shivers down your spine. I think the memories of walking into that opening ceremony will stick with you forever. Again, if only you could bottle it up and relive it all the time. And that's when it really hit me. Oh my word, I'm walking around an Olympic stadium on an opening ceremony behind my flag. And yeah, even now, you know, that Union Jack, that that lion on you, the Team GB, yeah, it, it would stick with you forever. You just wanted to make yourself proud. You wanted to make the team proud. And ultimately, you wanted to do the very best and you, you knew what you were going to expect of yourself and you just wanted to achieve it and to actually do what you knew that you could. Yeah, to maximise your potential, I guess. On the morning of the opening ceremony in Vancouver, a 21-year-old Georgian luge racer, Nodar Kumaritashvili, was thrown off the ice track in Whistler that you would be racing on. He was catapulted headfirst into a steel bar and he died. I defy anybody, Amy, not to feel pretty vulnerable off the back of that. Mm. How are you? Oh, I mean, literally you saying it, I've literally got shivers down my arms. I was fortunate not to have physically watched it, unlike my Aussie friend. She was there physically at the track and saw it all happen. I mean, to be fair, I'd completely forgotten exactly what day it had happened, but we'd already been sliding. Our, our training runs had already been happening. And yeah, it was just the shockwaves that went around our whole community. Bobsleigh Skeleton Luge, that ice sport, you might not know everyone. And particularly, actually, the luge athletes are quite separate to bobsleigh and skeleton because bobsleigh skeleton, we race at exactly the same time, whereas luge are floating around on different tracks at different times in the world. Yeah, it was just that kind of like, oh my word, we knew this track was the fastest ever built. The Canadians wanted to build the fastest track and they achieved it. And I think it just went to show that 
you know, luge is faster. They start further up. They start from the steeper run. It's a slightly different sport. They can steer a lot more accurately with their sleds. But obviously when it goes wrong, it goes wrong. And he was not quite as experienced clearly didn't have the same kind of coaching support and staff. And at the end of the day, it was an absolute freak accident. And I just remember thinking, like, what are we doing? Like, I'm basically living my life like a penguin, sliding down on my tummy, having a bit of a giggle. But actually, this sport is really dangerous. And I think it just kind of hit you like, oh, my goodness, like, we can die if it all goes wrong. Like, it can go wrong. I remember quite a few of the bobsleigh teams pulled out, especially in the two-man, four-man. I can't remember which ones. But yeah, the Netherlands guys, I remember, pulled out of one of their races. And there were lots of crashes all the time. And you literally, heart was in your mouth every time anyone crashed. Skeleton, we had some bad crashes as well because they... They just changed the profile of the ice on the corners. So the Canadians were a bit sneaky, were, were changing how the ice was. They wanted a bit of an advantage. And a lot of people did put up a, a stink and, and protests. But, you know, you turn up at Olympic Games, you have three days of training. That's two runs a day. So six runs to perfect your steers. I mean, that's like telling Lewis Hamilton, he can have six runs to qualify and that's it. And then one run to race. Like it's not going to happen. They have what? Hundreds. So yeah, it, it was scary. It was frightening. And what they did do, which I actually always forget, they allowed us to have one extra training run going into corner four. And that was on our first day of training. So actually, you're right, we hadn't started training because he had died. They let us have one extra training run and I took it up. So it was this real battle because every run you do, you're exhausted. You really fatigue really quickly, your mind, your body. But I wanted to do it because I was never the most confident athlete. I was always the most scared one. And I always like wasted that first day almost with my nerves And so I said to my coach, like, I want to do that extra run. It's a battle. You're doing then three runs on one day. But I wanted to almost waste that run with all of my nerves to know I'm alive. I'm at the bottom. I'm okay. And then when I get to the top, I'm fully concentrating. And actually, it was only me, a Italian girl and a Japanese girl three of us. That was it out of the whole field. And I can remember actually a few of the other girls and the German girls that also meddled said to me like, what are you doing? Don't be stupid. You're one of the best sliders in the world. You don't need to do it. And I just thought, nah, I'm sorry. I have to do it. I have to do it for me. And I'm so glad because I got rid of all those crazy nerves knowing, you know, what could happen. And then I got to the top and I could really concentrate and be really focused. Did you enlist the support or help of anybody else to try and perhaps compartmentalise what had happened to the Georgian guy? Because standing at the top of that run immediately after that incident, I just can't even imagine what would have been going through your mind. The answer is no. We did have a sports psychologist who we worked with in the build-up that sort of year before the Olympics. And I did meet with her a lot throughout the summer, as much as I was allowed. And it was for me trying to build that confidence, trying to work out why I never won races. I was always training champion and I always broke track records in training, but never on race day. And I was always second or third. So, you know, we were trying to come up with a plan, which luckily we finally cracked it. But I mean, I think in one sense, everyone talks about that chimp on your shoulder and the negative thoughts and the positive thoughts. And I think for me, 
throughout your whole skeleton career, if someone crashes in front of you, which happens a lot when you're learning, I always had to say, that's not me. That's another athlete. Just because they crashed, it doesn't mean that I'm going to crash. And that's all you can think about. And yes, you'll have corners that are the corners that you could crash at more. And you're going over them in your head over and over and over. But yeah, it doesn't mean you're going to crash. And you're always trying to tell yourself, we're two different people. You just have to have all those positive thoughts in your head and realise, no, facts here, facts. Remove all the emotion, go to the facts on the paper and listen to the facts, not the emotion. Rational thought, which is quite hard to achieve sometimes, isn't it? It, Particularly in scenarios like that. So Mm. obvious emotional vulnerability over that scenario and physical also because a couple of days before the racing you'd had a really nasty back seizure how how bad was that and how close did you come to to not making it out to do what you'd set out to do you must have like found the one article that i actually said to anyone about that i i kept that really quiet actually for ages yeah i mean anyone who knows me i've i've got dodgy discs they still cause me pain every day now And anyone who knows you've got a slip disc or you've got discs that are bulging and, you know, jabbing into all those nerves, it literally is a pain, pain in your ass. You never quite know when it's going to go and you can be the strongest you are in the world. You can do all of your rehab, everything physically possible every single day. And it can just be that one movement. I think I was like bending down, putting on my sock and then that's it. It went seized up and you're like, oh my goodness, okay, I can't even hardly bend over. I can't hardly move. And I've still got my training to do and pretend that I'm normal. And, you know, the physios were there and it was nothing that was new. So I was still trying to take as much painkillers and legal drugs as physically possible to help with the pain, to help with everything. But I think the same thing. I'd been in this position before. You try and do as little as possible, but as much as you can for what you need to do. And then you just have to go with it. Like you can't do anything about it. I couldn't control it. I knew that I had done everything physically possible every day, 100%. And that was it kind of thing. Again, putting it to the back of your head and just doing the best you could and still, you know, perfecting that plan. Trying not to think that it's going to affect your performance. You mentioned the damaged discs. You had four major knee operations, untold numbers of epidurals and painkillers. So is this all part of the kind of Faustian pact that you make when you're a skeleton racer? (laughs) Not necessarily, but yeah. I mean, lower back problems are a little bit of an issue in our sport, for sure. I mean, we're bent over in that push quite a lot. And then the impact that the G-forces, and I think like anything... All of us could have very slight wonks in our body, whether that's one degree here and there. And you might not ever know about it. But if you push your body to the extreme limit every single day, that potential 1% wonk in one of your knees or your legs or your arm or your shoulder can be enough to create issues and problems. Yeah, I mean, my first two knee injuries were probably from crashes, you know, bumping on the side, you shift something, cartilage this and that. And actually, my my two major ones were actually after I'd retired, ironically. So yeah, it's just part of it. And um, unfortunately for me, a very bad crash in my early years did my first disc. And then the others just got a bit bad as well. And another bad crash on the push track did one on the one in my neck. 
Yeah, it just happens, doesn't it? Parts of the past. So I'm sure rugby players get way worse injuries that are still lifelong as well. Yeah, part and parcel for sure. But what about the the rehab? Because repeated injury rehab is really tough Mm. on the mind. Did you struggle with that? And again, could you open up about it at the time? Oh, I think doing rehab is one of the worst things as an athlete. I think my back, it was just the constant maintenance. I would rock up to the gym at least 45 minutes earlier than anyone else just because I wanted to do all of those tiny little exercises. It's the boring little ones. I remember I'd be rocking up to the gym and bath rugby were always at the same time. And so it's normally like me back in the day. It was like Steve Borthwick and um, Lewis Moody actually Mike Tyndall, who's a good friend. Uh, there was always a few of us who were always there really early, like doing our boring rehab. But yet you kind of were in this little like, you've got to do it. This is what we have to do. And it glues you together. So there's that side of it, kind of maintenance. And then, yeah, for sure, when you're hobbling around on crutches and you can't even bend your knee because you've had keyhole surgery and your teammate is squatting 100 kilos and getting stronger by the day and you're just practicing bending your knee getting the range of movement back it's hard really hard and sometimes I just had to train at different times do what you needed to do to stay strong and focused you can still train the other leg you can still train other parts of your body and I think it made me realize well actually I always came out of injury stronger mentally in one sense physically because you could always still do all those other things just because one leg didn't work it didn't mean that the other leg didn't work when you could still really train to the best of your ability I think the hardest rehab was actually when I retired or literally the day a week that I said I was retiring I busted my knee big time basically blew up my whole entire knee, had total knee reconstruction. Oh, trying to come back from that when I had been kicked off fund. You know, I'd said I'd retired, so I had no funding, no rehab, no physio, no support, no help. My operation was paid for. And then literally as soon as I was done, out you go, you're done. And that was tough. And then also since then, I've had to have another knee reconstruction, knee alignment surgery with bolts in my knee. And yeah, I mean, they cause me issues all the time. (laughs) I won't drone on, but yeah, I mean, I went for a jog yesterday and I'm suffering today. I can barely walk around without being in pain, but... That's punishment. That really is punishment. punishment. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It intrigues me that actually, arguably, your most physically vulnerable moment came at that stage, right at the very end, beyond the end, Mm. actually. And how difficult was it for you to to handle? How did you handle it? How did you... Because you're then outside of the the confines of a sport, which by and large is trying to look after you to that stage, at least. It was tough. I mean, how I busted my knee was actually I was testing out this amazing piece of equipment that had come on board basically for me because I couldn't squat heavy because of my back and I I couldn't do a lot of things because of my stupid discs. So there was this this a piece of equipment that I was testing out and it wasn't set up properly and hence I busted my knee. So it was just really hard and I think when you've then retired and I chose to stop to then almost have to do the rehab when you're not even in the sport, but because you just need to be a normal person again. And I think when you enter in a gym, you know, I remember athletes were like, what are you doing in here? Why are you in the gym? You've retired. You don't have to be in a gym anymore. And you're kind of like, wow, that hurts. 
it hurts because you've said it. It hurts because you're right. I'm no longer competing. I feel really lost. I don't know what to do with myself. I'm not an athlete anymore, but I've still busted my knee and I still need to be able to physically walk. And I actually lived in a townhouse at the time in Bath. And oh my word, I'd pat my rucksack from the top of my house with my bedroom, bump down my stairs on my bum and then live in the bottom of the house with the kitchen and the food and a TV because I couldn't even walk up and down the stairs. Oh, it's hard. Really, really hard. That is pretty extreme. It's not what most mortals have to cope with. But happily, Amy, you achieved the ultimate, didn't you? And and everything fell Mm. into place for you in Vancouver at those Olympics. You and your sled, which you called Arthur. Why Arthur? (laughs) You know what? I named all of my sleds. It's like naming a boat. You've got to name your sled. Flat Stanley, if you ever read, he was my first one. There's that story book. I just remember reading of that boy called Flat Stanley. He got squashed flat, didn't he? And he got made into a kite and he went down drains. And (laughs) it just seemed sense to call my sled Flat Stanley. So he was called Stanley. And then, yeah, it was Arthur. Just, you know what? I just wanted a name beginning with A, Amy and Arthur. And that's just what it was. Simple as that. So Arthur became my my friend. You've got to have that bond. I'm sure we all name our cars. You know, it'd be silly not to. I love it. Such a great partnership. In your moment of victory, what were the emotions, Amy? Joy? Was it relief that you just actually finally nailed it down or was it something a bit more complicated than that? No, you nailed it. The very first emotion was just relief. I've done it. I knew I could win it. I knew I could win a medal. I knew I could win gold. My training times, I'd put down some of the fastest times. The year before in a World Cup race, I had got a silver medal. And over those last years, I knew when it all came together on every track in the world, I'd pretty much pot down a fastest run out of every female athlete. So I think it was just the fact that all the hard work, all those gym sessions, rocking up early when no one else saw you, you know, going to bed, half past nine, ten o'clock every single night of my life, you know, from those Turin Olympics, missing out eating healthy, not having alcohol, not eating cakes. Everything was finally worth it. So it was just that big sigh of relief. (sighs) I've done it. Yeah, I've done it. I knew I could. I've done it. And then obviously it's just a pride, exhilaration. You've done it. You've done it for the team. You've done it for everyone. You've done it for your parents who drove you up and down the country, up and down to airports at three o'clock in the morning for however many 10 years. You did it for everyone, for everything. And to be the one to, to have that Union Jack round you, to, to be the one who brings home that medal for your country, to be fair, then you, you're just exhausted. You just want to go to bed and have a cup of tea. And uh, you know, like, <laughs> I'm brilliantly oh, British. I'm just done now. I I'm need just tea. so tired. <laughs> <laughs> it's lovely to hear you talk about it the way you do. It kind of quite obviously still gives you a real glow when you think about it. Yeah, I I mean, if I had a genie in the lamp, I would just love to go back to that time because I didn't write a diary. I wrote things down on the track, my track notes, but I didn't write any other diary or feelings around it. And I just wish I had. I mean, when I would have had time to, I'm not sure, but I wish I had written down more. But that girl then almost feels like a different girl to what I am now. It's a very out-of-body experience just looking at your medal, you just know what it sums up. And I think the life that I have now is because of it. And the people who were around me at that time who enabled it to happen, 
and ultimately myself that stood on those start lines and, and made it happen and did it. No, there's nothing more special than taking your medal around schools and letting young athletes see it or around corporate businesses, seeing a grown man of 60 see it and like almost bring a tear to his eye. And and even now when I see other Olympic medals, doesn't matter how old they are or what colour they are, it sends shivers down your spine because you know what it took to win that medal, whether it's a gold, silver or bronze. Now I'm, well, I've nearly finished my book, actually. I, I'm writing down my top tips and lessons and all the advice that I now would give young athletes, teenage athletes who want to reach that high performance. Like, this is what I did. These are the levels that I took it. Here's top tips. So I've got amazing quotes from athletes all over every sport who have contributed. And I just think you want to help that next person and inspire them. And your medal enables, yeah, that next generation. And as a parent as well, any family tobogganing yeah. trips planned? Not at the moment, no. I mean, Oscar's just turned four two weeks ago and little Alfie's not quite two. And actually, Oscar's just got his first little rugby tot session this Sunday, which I am super excited. Although I can't go, my husband's going to take him because it's one parent only because of COVID. So yeah, we've got secret hopes that they're actually going to become rugby stars. Uh, We're massive rugby fans, especially living in Bath. Who knows? They might hate sport. We hope they don't. But they can do whatever they want. A bit like my parents, they were just there in the background supporting. It didn't matter what we did. They were just there supporting us. And I think that's 100% what I would be as a parent. I would never be a pushy parent, although I'm slightly like, we'll try and steer you in certain directions. But ultimately... Steering's okay. Steering's okay. Steering's okay, yeah. Ultimately, they have to find their own passion in whatever it is. And I don't care what it is, so long as they have a passion and then work hard to achieve something brilliant message amy what a career you had it's been fantastic dissecting the the emotional highs and some of the lows with you as well some real extremes in there as with all of you incredible high achievers life perhaps a little less high octane at the moment off the sled thank you so much for sharing your your time and your story pleasure thank you You've been listening to Running on Emotion with me, Alistair Eakin, an Eakin Media production for Audi. If you've enjoyed listening, please subscribe, like and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Our hashtag is Running on Emotion and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Sound is by Norman Goodman and the series producer is Andrew Sampson. Thanks for listening. Listener.